Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. Have you ever wondered what it's like to be a spy? Like, how do you apply? What kind of questions do they ask you in the job interview? What do you do every day? And what are you allowed to tell people about what you do? Well, Andrew Kirsch has all the answers. Andrew was a spy for 10 years with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and he's written a book called I Was Never Here, My True Canadian Spy Story of Coffees, Codenames, and Covert Operations in the Age of Terrorism. This is his story. All right. Andrew Kirsch, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. No, thanks for, for coming on. So I guess the easiest way to get into this is just to make the observation. You were a spy. Yes, I was a Canadian spy for under a decade with the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. So and even saying it out loud, yeah, it ceases. Even saying it out loud now, I spent so long uh, uh, not talking about it, but I guess I can say that now. That's great. I've I've read your book. It's it's a great book. We'll we'll talk at the end about how folks can can get the book and when they can get it. Let me make a couple of observations. So it's a very candid book. I, I presume sort of within the bounds of what you were able to disclose as a result of national security legislation, presumably. But you you do a really great job of describing not only kind of why you became a spy or why you joined CSIS, but what the impact was on other people in your life, like your relationships and, and eventually the woman who eventually became your wife. Can you tell sort of what was the motivating factor that prompted you to ultimately send in the application and say, I want to be a spy? Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm, I'm glad you did. I was going to date myself here, but I was uh, my final year at uh, university when 9-11 happened. Um, and then in 2005, uh, there was the, the terrorist bombings in, in London uh, on 7-7. On and I was working in finance at the time and just decided maybe there was something else going on in the world and I wanted to get involved, which is when I, I kind of say I first Googled, how do I become a Canadian spy? And I think, you know, there was, there was really a generation of us around that time that, that, that kind of ran, I said, ran off and joined the circus. And that was the motivation. It was this idea that there's something going on in the world and I want to be a part of it. And the way to, to do that is to join up the CSIS. And I, I thought that was my way to, to contribute. So I moved, I was living in London at the time, moved back to, to Canada, filled out the application and, and didn't know much about it. Went through all the steps and the processes and yeah, had a, had a, a pretty good, pretty good career. Right. And so did you, was there anyone in your family that had been like either, you know, in CSIS or in government service generally, or kind of a police officer in the military? No, I had, we had no experience and I didn't know anybody um, who had Really been the military or or at CSIS and was largely on my own, and so I went out and tried to, to look up, uh, you know, what is it like, or do we have any books? There really isn't much that exists. Uh, there aren't, to my knowledge, any Canadian spy memoirs that are out there. Um, and one of the reasons I wrote the book is because now that I'm out and I talk about it, I get a lot of questions from from kids and young people who are interested. What was it like? They, why did you? How'd you get in? What'd you do? And why'd you leave? And so I wanted to write the book kind of for this, uh, the next generation of people who are coming up and not just what you're going to be doing. And I'm able to say some, but obviously not all, but what your life is like, you know, to your, to your point, it's, it's a career. Absolutely. And everyone has challenging careers, but there's this weird dynamic where uh, you are going out in public. Uh, in my case, 
15, 20 minutes from where I grew up, uh, knocking on doors, introducing myself as Andrew from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and I need your help with a national security investigation, and this is what I'm looking for. Very open and honest with, with the person, and then I go home or go on a date or talk to my family, and I lie to everyone I know that actually knows me about what I do all day and where I'm going and who I'm seeing. So there's this funny dynamic, uh, and the fact that we're a domestic intelligence service and working close to home kind of adds to that. So that's that was the story. What I wanted to get across is not just what they do, why it's important, but also the, the surreal nature of it all at, at times. Yeah, that, and one of the things about that surreal nature of it that sort of comes across and struck me really was the seeming like complete absence of any guidance from your employer as to sort of how to be a spy in public or how to, you know, handle your job in public. Like, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, like you sort of had, there was an expectation, oh, you're going to stay quiet about this. Like, you're not going to reveal it. But the onus was really on you to figure out when to reveal, how to reveal, like even in talking to relatives and, you know, as you describe in the book, when you're going on dates, like there's no hard and fast rules. You're in a sense, you're kind of making it up as you go along. Yes. Uh, I mean, the, the word I think I say throughout what was told to us throughout our career is discretion. You're, you're, you're supposed to be practicing discretion. And it really, it's for your own preservation. I, I mean, one of the things is when you do tell somebody, you realize pretty quickly, well, now you've given them the secret that you're asking them to keep for you. So there's this pressure that you, if, if I'm doing it and I'm going to keep the secret, that's fine. Once I tell you and say, oh, by the way, don't tell anybody else. And that's a lot to ask of somebody. And that puts them in a, in a position that I was always uncomfortable with. So there's a bit of self-preservation there. And yeah, you, you learn to navigate it as, as you go on your career. At first, I say, I'm, I think I'm going to be doing some deep undercover operation and no one can know where I work. And you realize pretty quickly that that's impossible, that, that you're going to have to open up a little bit and start to share with, with certain people and, and get more comfortable in it. So you know, that, that is a challenge of the, of the career. You know, we're not a clandestine service. It's, it's a, not a secret organization. It's an organization with secrets. And depending on what you're doing, yeah, there's, there's you know, certain people who are very public. There's liaison officers. There are an academic outreach. We're out in the community as well. So it is, it is that challenge that we, we're navigating. And they're not say, overly prescriptive to say, in each situation, say this, say that. You kind of have to figure it out. Uh, and that's that part of the, the, the fun of it and the, and the challenge of it. Right? Amazing. And so actually, can we just pull apart that? So what is a clandestine service? Like you've, you've said you said here in, in the book that CSIS is not a clandestine service. So what are there examples of truly clandestine services either in Canada or elsewhere in the world? How, how should we think about what a clandestine well, service is. I, I, maybe it's easier just to think about, uh, you know, we are a domestic intelligence service. So when people think about CSIS, uh, they're, they're, oh, you're the CIA. So well, no, we're not the CIA. You know, the CIA is a foreign, uh, you know, foreign intelligence service that's operating abroad, gathering foreign intelligence, and that's not CSIS. We are, uh, you know, operating here, advising government, collect, analyzing, retaining. We're not given, you know, diplomatic covers and foreign embassies and, and running around and say, you now work for the Ministry of Agriculture and here's all your credentials. You know, that, uh, you know, that, that is, is not what we're doing here. So yeah, that, that level of cover is, is not the norm, I would say. And that's the challenge, right? Going out and knocking on doors, talking to people, saying you're from CSIS, um, saying I'm here and my name is Andrew, this is my face, this is my badge and I need your help. And then people look at you and go, you know, we're, we're clandestine because no one knows who we are. 
I said, you're helping. Who are you guys? And have to explain it. (laughs) So it's not on purpose, but we're very public in a sense that I identify myself as a CSIS. And I say, this is what we do. This is what we're mandated to investigate. This is what I need your help with uh, in a very open and upfront way. So yeah, I guess that uh, would be the difference than saying, oh no, I work for for this and uh, I'm not who I say I am. Right. Now, so forgive my naivete here. And maybe this is the (laughs) naivete of like, you know, eight-year-old Bob Tarantino who wanted to be a spy. In my mind, it conjures up the notion of maybe what's properly called sort of a super spy, like kind of a comic book version of a spy or, you know, like a James Bondian kind of persona and and somebody who's running around with guns all the time and, Mm -hmm. you know, getting into trouble, exciting trouble, photogenic trouble, but trouble. Was there any part of that notion that was in your mind, like when, when you were a kid, were you like, oh yeah, I want to be James Bond. Did that feed into the decision to, to apply at all? Or, you know, I, I was never really let's say, a big fan that, that was this idea of being a spy, absolutely something that's interesting or, or, or a way to serve. Um, and not knowing anything about Kando, all of our references are to James Bond or the CIA, uh, to the Mossad, you know, all these, these crazy operations they're running around that, that you read about in the books. So yeah, there, that definitely is the impression. And I, and I think I, I try in the book to say, by the way, that's not everyone's experience, right? The, my first placement after training was in a desk for two years in a windowless office, reading reports, writing memos, and being a compliance officer to make sure that all the, the field investigators were adhering to all of our operational policies and guidelines. So definitely not something that I thought about, uh, this is the life of the spy. But later on, uh, I do join our special operations team and we're, and we're doing that kind of middle of the night technical surveillance uh, operations and there is there's a part of that you know there is a a group of people who are doing those kind of things that you would kind of in your mind think of as as those uh, those spy activities but it's it's not the range of what everyone's up to every day right there's the right. uh, it, it is really knocking the knocking on doors and asking for help. It's a very interpersonal existence as a spy here. I, I mean, certainly one of the recurring themes in the book that I took away from it is is kind of the quotidian nature, of, like like the bureaucracy that you're dealing with. I, there's one there was one great scene which I you talked about, like you you and your one of your colleagues were like in an office with no windows, no art, no plants, and you kept joking about getting a poster of a window just to liven it up a little bit. So I thought that was quite insightful in terms of the reality, like the day to day reality of, of what it is that you were doing. I want, just before we we sort of go into further detail about sort of what you were doing as a when you were in special operations you joined up when you it sounds like you were in your mid-20s sort of thing is that the right time to join like were you sort of late in coming to it should you have joined up earlier like should somebody if somebody's thinking about doing this like what's the the right window for them to send in that application do you think well, I, we had people in my class from all different kind of ages and stages of life. A lot of second careers. Mine was a second career. Um, some people right out of university. Now there's a requirement. You have to have a degree uh, to, to apply. So automatically you're, uh, and then of course it can take a year. So, you know, you might be working somewhere else while you wait for your application to go through. But some lawyers, teachers, social workers, I was in finance before, uh, military folks who have uh, taking on as a second career at, at all ages and stages. I, I just by the circumstances where, yeah, in my in my mid twenties, that's when kind of events unfolded that, that maybe want to apply. I, I kind of joke everybody. If you think about it, send the application. It takes so long. It's not like they're going to call you 
and say, can you be here in two weeks? You're going to have a year, you know, 15 months to decide if it's something you want to do. So, uh, you know, but I say the best time to apply is now, and then you'll, you'll get to figure it out in a year when they call you back and say, uh, would you, would you like to move to Ottawa? <laughs> well, and that was another, so, I mean, moving to Ottawa uh, is a part of the kind of induction. So, but the other thing that I found sort of, I don't know if shocking is the right word, but like there's a French requirement. Like you have to be, you have to pass a, a fluency test for French, which strikes me as like foreclosing a lot of potential candidates. Could I get like, what's the, how does that work? Why, why is there a French yeah, language there, requirement? <laughs> there is a, there's a requirement to be uh, able to speak and, and, and work in French. And it just happens to be a requirement of, of CSIS and I think the foreign service as well, which would make sense. Um, and so when you get the job, you don't have to know French. Uh, they will teach you French. You will go to French language training. I went for nine months of French language training. I did not do well in French growing up. So I went to, to for nine months sitting around a table with a, with a bunch of other uh, recent spies. We have no idea what we're allowed to tell people about why we're there, what we're doing. And we're trying to talk about our, you know, uh, what we did the night before. I, I, I think back on that passage if I was too harsh on my experience, but it, it is, it's tough. You know, you're, you're, you're excited to be, you've signed up to join, to be a spy. You've gone through your year. They've given you the job and they say, now go to this classroom and spend nine months learning French, um, which is something I avoided to do when I was younger, but it is a requirement. And I used it a little bit while I was there, but that's, that's the nature of it. And all of us had to go through it. If you didn't know it already. And obviously if you know French, uh, you're, you're going to be okay, but brush up on it. I ask everybody uh, who's applying, how's your French? Get it ready um, to see if you can get through that, that language training a little quicker. Amazing. Your career lasted for about 10 years, right? Like roughly a decade. Was there, especially in the early days, was there ever a moment where you were like, this is just the wrong, like I made the wrong <laughs> choice here. I got to get out of here. Or, or were you fairly, was it kind of engaging and challenging enough throughout, throughout the, your, your tenure there? There were definitely moments where I, certainly early on when I, when I, got my first placement and I'm sitting behind a desk at the windowless office. And I say that you know, none of us wanted to get a plant because we didn't want anyone to think we were happy to stay there. That would be an investment in that <laughs> office that no one wanted to make. Um, so yeah, there was definitely, um, okay, like how do, I, how do I move to a different desk? One thing about CSIS is there's many opportunities to move around. And I did time in Ottawa and I moved to Toronto and I worked at Special Operations Desk. So you, you do have these operation uh, or, or opportunities to move around. So you start kind of plotting, how do I get, how do I get over there? You know, who do I, what's the next uh, step look like? In some cases it's okay, that's two years away and, and that's a bit of a grind. I have to, I have to stick around here. But yeah, I, I joined the, the reserves, uh, the army reserves. When I first moved back, I said, I'm gonna join the army and sign up for CSIS, not knowing if I'd get into CSIS. I was trying to serve and, and these were the ways that I thought I would do that in 2006. And so when I, when I joined CSIS, I get my desk job. And a lot of the guys that went on training with started going overseas to Afghanistan and were serving in, you know, around that time, the guys that I, that I trained with and I didn't go. And so I absolutely thought, okay, I've, maybe I've made the wrong decision here. Like uh, I've signed up to serve. I'm here at a desk writing policy memos and those guys are, are, are doing their thing. Was this, was this the right venue for, for that? But as I said, you're able to move around. I, I do consider it was that I had a, a very good career. I had no complaints overall about progression. We pay our dues on any job you go to, but there was this, I got to get out there. I got to do more. I'm, I'm here and I want to be as effective as I can be. And some of it was you know, just waiting for that time. 
Right. We'll talk about the sort of the getting out there and the doing things in a moment. But one of the other really compelling elements of the book is you talk about the impact that it had on, you know, your relationships, you know, both kind of romantic and familial and, and, and basically everybody that you interacted with. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what it was like to date as a CSIS member? Yeah, it's challenging. It's, um, you know, I, I, I moved to Ottawa and uh, was seeing someone at the time and that relationship, and we can talk a little bit about it, kind of falls apart in, in the course of my training that I've, I've moved away from Toronto. We're doing long distance. I can't talk about what I'm doing. Start getting pulled into this, this kind of secret world that now you have these new friends that you can talk about. And that, that, that is a challenge. And so you think, okay, well, where am I going to go meet somebody? And, and I was always a fan of online dating. And of course, when you put, you know, what do you put in your, in your job on your uh, JDA profile? <laughs> and when you put government in Ottawa, that, that invites a lot of questions, um, which I was surprised about when I first started to do it. it was, oh, what, what's your, um, where's your office? What's your level? Are you in management training? How did you get X, Y, and Z? And I, I thought that was you know, very funny. Moving back to Toronto and you put government and everyone wondered why I left finance. It was a much different, a much different response. And there's a balance about when do you tell somebody, right? Like I, lying doesn't feel good um, when you say I work for the government and try and change the subject. It, it, it's, it's not great. So there becomes this moment where it's awkward that you haven't been honest, you know, that the, the further along you, you, you go. But I also didn't want to feel like I was kind of trading on it, right? Let's say the first date I show up and, hey, this, you know, I work for CSIS and I'm super, you know, I'm super cool and interesting. I felt that was, that was also not the spirit of what I was supposed to be right. doing with my career, <laughs> right? Was, so I, uh, I, I obviously, you know, you didn't. Meanwhile, I'd say I work for the government and I'm seeing the, the dates kind of eyes glaze over and like, I'm really interesting, I promise, but I, I you know. I uh, can't tell you about it. So it, it is a challenge. And I, I kind of, I think I go through the book and say, when you're young and in mid twenties and you're dating and you're out and investigating, it's fun. But when you get older and you, and you get in a serious relationship and now you're, they're lying for you and you can't be honest with them, you know, that, that becomes more and more of a challenge. So I, I laugh about the dating part of it, but yeah, it's tricky. It's, it's tricky. You know, and, we're, and we're at home. We're, we're where we grew up. We have people who want to set us up on dates. Right. And they want to know what to tell someone. <laughs> right. And that's tricky. As your career progresses and, and through the course of the book, it, it seems to me that part of the change in the tenor and, the, and sort of the tone of the book is you start undertaking special operations uh, or you become part of the special operations desk. And that just sort of, it's a very different job than being an analyst. Uh, or being involved in compliance. So can you give listeners a sense of what special operations is and you know how that in particular, where you, you seem to be exposed to danger on you know at least a recurring basis, if not a regular basis, how that impacts you know your relationship in, in your case with 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 your spouse? Sure. So the the way investigations work is as as a, as a threat escalates, you can apply for more invasive um, investigative powers. So if someone seemed to be a threat, you'd go to a judge. You'd say, you know, these are the reasons why we think this person uh, is conducting threat related activities, and 
in the case of warranted powers, you know, we, we feel like we need uh, additional powers to get access to privileged information that we otherwise would not be entitled to. And so you make that application, the judge says you were entitled to you know, see this person's email communications or to um, listen to conversations or whatever those uh, intrusive powers are. And the idea is, well, you can't always go up and ask the person, can you hand over your phone, please? I'd like to have a look at it. The judge says I'm allowed to have a look at it you need to get access to that. And that's when they would call in the kind of the special operations team, which is the invocation of those warranted powers. They would say, this is what we're entitled to. This is the information we're entitled to. We would like to get access to it in a you know, covert or clandestine manner. And you know, we would put together those kind of operational plans, either close access, which would be the, the you know, get physically getting to a place and taking information and replacing it so no one knew it was gone, or remotely, which you know is, is the um, using kind of technology in place, uh, like someone's phones and things like that, to get access to it um, from a distance. So those can be, you know, I would say I was never afraid of getting hurt. I was always afraid of getting caught when we would be out in these special operations and trying to you know, search someone's office or car or, or wherever that was involving large teams. And that's one of the things you see in in the movies is someone running around all by themselves doing all these things. Really, it's a pretty collaborative team effort where we're all uh, have different roles and functions and, and working together to do it. So to get to your other question, when I when I was just a, a field investigator, a regular field investigator, and I was with my you know, now wife and we were dating, I would say, look, I, I, I told her I worked. I said, I have to meet with people and talk to people. That's part of my job. And sometimes people don't like to talk during the day. So I go out at night. That's seven o'clock, eight o'clock, I might have a meeting. You know, that's when people are available. And I did special operations and that was more the 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift. And she said, who are you meeting at two in the morning? Uh, and I would have played, well, no, this is now, you know, we are trying to operate when people are not there or are asleep and things are quiet. And, and that is you know, largely when those, not, not all the time, to be honest, but uh, occasionally. And so that's a much different kind of pace of life um, the challenge of you, you work all day and then you come home, you have a quick nap, you, you, you put on your, your, uh, your, your gear and you head out all night and you come home at four in the morning and your heart's racing and you hope everything worked and no, you weren't discovered the next day and you try to get a couple hours sleep and, and go into the office the next day. So there's a different kind of challenge on of the operations and then, yeah, on those relationships to, to say I'm stressed or I'm tired and to go through that. So uh, a lot of fun, different challenges, but that's it, that's the part is that you, oh, this is the thing I thought I was going to be doing. I'm going to be running around. We're doing these cool things. And, you're, and then you're sitting there doing like, oh my goodness, this is, I'm exhausted. Right? Maybe this is much fun all the time as I thought it would be. Or yeah, this was great, but there are also challenges that come along with it. I don't know if I've said it already, but like kudos to you on, on how candid you are in the book, both about you know the kind of internal challenges and, and the challenges and the stresses that the that the job you know imposed on your relationship. So it, it really it's a really compelling read. The so as we said, you you were with CSIS for about a decade, and you touched on it earlier, and you touched on it in the book. Like part of the motivation for joining was because you were you know quote unquote civically minded, right? You wanted to kind of contribute to a particular cause or, or contribute to, you know, the goal of, of keeping Canada safe. You're remarkably uncynical, non-cynical in the book, right? Like, and so I'm, I'm just curious about that. Like, is there anything about when you look back on that 10 years, how do you, how do you sort of 
sum it up for yourself in terms of that initial civically minded motivation? Like, did you accomplish something worthwhile? Were you, were you doing good work and you're happy with that 10 years or, or did it, did you ultimately sort of end up being like, you know what, I, like I can do better things in another venue or, or it's not what I thought it was going to be. That's a, that's a great question. I and obviously writing the book, thinking back over my career, I'm, I'm glad that came across. Like I did have a good career, proud of the organization and proud of the role I played in it. I'm not big enough to think that it will not go on without me. I think that's part of the nature of it, which is it's a big machine. It was existing long before I got there. It'll be okay once I leave. And this grappling of, okay, I came to serve. It did, you know, eight, nine, 10 years, like I served. And I, I'm okay with that. You know, I don't have to do 30 years. That for me was knowing when to get out before I got a little too burnt out by it. And that was starting to happen, which is becomes a grind. Things keep rolling on. The next day's the next investigation. And did that work out well? Well, well we got to worry about the next thing. And I think that's where people get, can get jaded and get a little burnt out. So maybe I, I kind of stepped out at the right time where I, I'm able to say, I had a good career. I didn't do everything I wish I, I, I could have done. I could have done things better, absolutely. But that's okay to leave. You know, that's okay to, to, to step out and say, there's other things I want to do with my life. Cause it's a very, you know, a specific thing. Like I, I kind of left finance. I went to become a spy and now I'm no longer a spy and I still work in security, but it's a very specific community where, you know, the people I met are not allowed to acknowledge they ever met me. Right. So it's not like I have a great uh, a network of people on uh, my LinkedIn and Facebook when, when you're, you're leaving to go draw on. It's like, oh, no, we can never I will never speak to you ever again when you when you go. So there's an a bit of an interruption as far as how life goes when you sign up and do that. And I guess what kept me from being too cynical was yeah, acknowledging the stresses that it has. So uh, I think that comes across where it is a challenge with. Like the spy books you read, because some of the spy books I read when I was looking to get in, it's you know, the person's in the back of the trunk, they're in the trunk of a, of, of a car in, in, in the Middle East, and they're firing this gun here. And then it's like, and then I got divorced, and then I'm back in Africa, and I'm running around. And I'm like, yeah, there's like that. Then I got divorced. It's like probably really impacting the before a performance and the after performance. And if, if that's just like aligned in your book, that's not really the whole story. So that was, you know, I wanted to kind of get that, that point across that, you know, challenges I had were, were things that you know, I was trying to deal with and, and maybe the next person will deal with them a little bit better, um, knowing that those are the challenges they're going to be facing, but that it's going to be fun and strange and weird and yeah, a cool, a cool career as well. Yeah. And I mean, th there's one line that you it comes towards the end of the book. Uh, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on that because you mentioned before that, you know, you have lots of people who, who ask you about your career in CSIS and, and, you know, they express sort of an interest in it. And I'm wondering how you advise them in light of the fact that, as I said, towards the end of the book, you refer to it as a calling. And I thought that was a really interesting description, you know, in the sense that it's not simply an occupation. I mean, it, it's a job, but, you know, for somebody for a lot of people, it, it's truly a calling. Like it's something that motivates them beyond kind of just the mere fact that they're getting paid and have something to do every day. Is that, uh, can we pull that apart a bit? Like how, was it not a calling for you or did it start off as a calling? And then it, it kind of, you, you didn't hear the, the call anymore. Or how did that sort of play out? Well, you know, I, uh, yeah, I do think there's an aspect of what, what's motivating you to, 
someone to do this because it is a unique application process, recruitment process. You know, you throw yourself in a little blindly this idea that you're going to be a spy and serve without really knowing what your day looks like, where you're going to be put, uh, where you're going to spend two years of your life, when you can move, uh, what you can tell people. So I think there's a bit of a leap there of faith and this understanding that what I'm doing matters and I'm willing to do, I'm willing to do it. Uh, I want to do it because I believe I'm going to be contributing and, and there's a satisfaction. And I absolutely felt that. And, and that was kind of my generation, right? We were this post 9-11, this terrorism's happening and we're like, oh, we want to get involved. We see very clearly what we're going to be getting involved to, not necessarily to do, but what we're up against, right? We had this idea of we're, we want to keep bombs from going off in Canada. We want to make sure that people stay safe. And there was a feeling like we were at risk. So, well, you need some people to make sure that things stay safe. And I want to be one of those people. And that does keep you going in those, those days when I'm writing, reading policy memos and reading about all the other cool adventures that the, the other CSIS uh, intelligence officers are doing that I'm not. That I'm, but think I'm still a part of this machine. You know, I'm still contributing. I'm keeping them out of trouble so that we can you know, we can keep doing what we're doing and eventually I'll be there. Does that go out? I think it's life changes, you know, circumstances change. I was 25 and they say, you're gonna move to Ottawa, you're gonna live in a shoebox, and you're gonna, you know, we're not gonna tell you the rest until you get there. Um, sure, of course, absolutely, sign me up. And then it's, yeah, you know, line everyone is getting a little, is, is getting a little old and, I can see I'm stressing my wife out when I'm, I'm say I'm going to be home at three in the morning and she wakes up at four and I'm not there. And she tries to call me, my phone's off because I'm stuck in a, in a stairwell with no service. You know, you come back to that and you see the impact that your life and career have on other people around you. And you know, that's going to, you know, it's going to change the equation. So am I still, you know, I think even people who leave still are very passionate about service, are very um, you know, passionate about Canada. I don't think people leave and go, I'll speak for myself. Uh, I didn't leave and go. That organization isn't isn't trying hard and, and maybe doesn't make mistakes. But you know, I'm okay to step away for a while. And there's other ways to serve. Yeah, that and I think that transition happens. People uh, that happened for me at just at that point. And I knew I knew it was time to go. Right. Amazing. Well, Andrew, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me today. When and where <laughs> can can people find the book and and read more about your story? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. The book is called I Was Never Here, My True Canadian Spy Story of Coffees, Codenames, and Covert Operations in the Age of Terrorism. And you can get it wherever you buy your books on March 1st. It's available for pre-order now, uh, Amazon, Indigo, uh, your local bookstore. Uh, hopefully, if you want to see links, you can go to iwasneverhere.ca, which is the website I set up uh, with some links. And yeah, I hope you know, hope people enjoy it. I hope it's informative, entertaining. I try to keep it entertaining. And yeah, it's a real pleasure to come here and talk to you about it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com.